0: You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. Attention, if you're an eastern whitetail hunter with dreams of hunting elk, antelope, or mule deer out west, but are overwhelmed with the knowledge gap, look no further than outdoor class. Outdoor Class features professionally produced courses taught by the world's leading outdoor experts and can be consumed on your phone, computer, or TV. Visit OutdoorClass.com and start the process of making your hunting dreams come true. Use discount code EMPIRE20 at checkout for 20% off. Transform the way you hunt with the all-new base Cellular Trail Camera connected by the Moultrie mobile app.
2: In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good
0: thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker,
2: you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to Maximize Your Hunt, the podcast dedicated to those who want the most out of their hunting property. This podcast explores land management, habitat improvement, and hunting strategies that will help you maximize your time in the field. Follow along as industry professionals that live and breathe whitetail deer share their secrets to success. And now, the founder of Whitetail Landscapes, your host, John Teeter.
1: I'm John Teter, Whitetail Landscapes. This is Maximize Your Hunt. Welcome back, everybody. A little housekeeping. Uh, I'm hoping anybody who listens to this podcast would be obliged to go in and give a five-star review and comment. I really appreciate that. You know, I've been doing this podcast for over a year now, and uh, we haven't taken any sponsorship. I've done that by design. I'm focusing on providing education and support to people that want to improve their properties, uh, that want to connect with the right people. You know, over the past, I'll say three, four weeks, I've had a lot of reach-outs and I just want to be clear with everybody. I'm trying to get back to everybody. I'm trying to get you in the schedule. I've connected a few of you with other consultants that I'm I'm connected with. So I'm open to that and, and just keep reaching out. Some people providing questions and I'm responding when I can. And just busy and uh, I'm on the road a lot. I just got back from a client visit today and it's, you know, I was working this weekend. So I'm really busy working with clients, trying to get them kind of moving and shaking. The other thing I want to mention is we, you know, I, once you listen to this, we released a podcast on building grouse habitat. And I hope people listen to that because that was really detailed, you know, trying to specify layout, plants, distance, you know, spatial distribution on the landscape. You know, Todd Waldron and I, I thought did kind of a nice job with that. So I think that was kind of a detailed kind of involved podcast that was really I don't know, uh, you know, educational and, uh, I'm excited. I've got a lot more stuff coming up with, you know, some gurus, but I'm really excited for this podcast today. And, uh, this has been a long time coming and, uh, I want to kind of introduce the guest really quick. Hey, Brian, are you on the line?
2: Yes, sir. John.
1: Okay. So if anybody's familiar with the habitat podcast, uh, those guys have been around quite a while. And uh, it's Jaron and Brian, and, and I'm happy to have, you know, uh, Brian Helbleith on today. And I'm, I'm excited for him because he's ha- he's had a journey over the years, and I- I've talked to him. I've been on their podcast. Some of my guests on my podcast have been on theirs, and I-, I think they've got a wealth of knowledge. Brian himself has has been, you know, doing habitat design and layout for over 20 years, and he's got a lot of experience. So we're going to get into his experience and kind of, pull out from the spiderweb some of the knowledge he has and, and kind of dig deep into what he hasn't, you know, he's failed that and, and find some of his successes in that failure. And uh, so I kind of want to introduce you, Brian, and give you, you know, kudos. And I appreciate listening to your podcast. And I would ask anybody who listens to this podcast, please listen to the Habitat podcast. There's a ton of good information and, and a ton of good guests on there. So that's my intro to you. How you been?
2: I'm doing great, my friend. Good to talk to you again.
1: Good, good. And I had a great time on your podcast, so hopefully uh, I can uh, do the same. Let's get into sure. your your journey and where you started and where you're at today. Uh, property, you know, you you had purchased property and, and then you upgraded. And let's kind of go through your story a little bit.
2: Sure. Um, starts back um, even before I had some property. I met a friend of mine uh, through a traditional archery shoot and, um, he had mentioned that he had had some property in Ohio and he was thinking about planting some food plots. And this is probably, um, right around 2000, 2001. And, uh, he was kind of green at it and I was kind of green and I said, sure, I'll, I'll give you a hand. So started trying to learn as much as I could back then. You know, the internet was in its infancy and, um, weren't as many, um, chat groups and things quite about habitat like there are now and, and, and different uh, resources. So just kind of learned a lot from uh, books and magazines and trial and error and started helping my friend on his property and just planting some simple food plots. And it's kind of how it all started.
1: So where you're at today is quite evolved from those days, um, but you've purchased property and let's go through your evolution of buying land and then Let's go to where you're at today and and why you've done what you've done over the years.
2: Sure. Yeah. So uh, my goal was, I think I was in my late twenties. I I grew up in the suburbs. I never really had my own piece of property and my my family's kind of suburbanites and grew up in the cities working in factories and things and uh, nobody really had any land, but my dad was a big outdoorsman. He always made time for me and my brother and took us fishing and hunting and, I always thought, boy, it'd be really nice to have my own place someday. So I started saving for that. And, uh, I guess it was about 2007. I bought my first piece of property. I live in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, but Ohio is only maybe 20 minutes from my driveway. So, uh, this, the archery seasons are longer, the soils better, the deer bigger. And, uh, so I figured that that's a good, good place to start with, uh, land ownership. So I found a, 25 acre piece that I could afford and, um, was lucky enough to save up enough money to, to, and, and got a good deal on it and worked at for probably, I guess about six years and, uh, the market caught up and, uh, I was fortunate enough to sell that and, and turn that into a 40 acre piece, which, which I ended up moving probably about an hour North of where that one was. But yeah, just, uh, the, the whole way, um, learning how to get better at habitat work and learning what works and what didn't. And, and just trying to, uh, improve every year. So in that
1: journey, you kind of leveled up, you went from a 25 acre piece to a 40 acre piece. I'm guessing the value of the property may have increased during that time frame or not. What can you explain a little bit about that?
2: Yeah. So there was a couple of factors. Um, the real estate agent had bought it and, um, for an investment. So he wasn't really heavily invested into it. I think he got it off of an estate or a, uh, um, some kind of, uh, I don't know if it was a tax sale or an estate sale, but from talking to him, it sounded like he got a really good deal on it. And he had it listed. Uh, I think it was 35,000 at okay. the time. And I said, well, I said, I'd like to be around a thousand an acre. And I know that probably sounds crazy to the listeners to hear that today, but Back in two thousand and seven, you could get some decent properties for still around a thousand fifteen hundred an acre you know in rural Ohio. so I made him an offer of the twenty five thousand and and he took it and uh yeah it was it was probably valued a little bit higher, but you know that was a fair deal for him for what he had into it, and I had instant equity in it, so just being able to hold on to it for a few years after that it it increased quite a bit.
1: That's good. And then obviously that increase that appreciation and value you added to it gave you this 40 acre property, you know, some distance away. So that's a, another commitment, right? It's a little further away, but you know, kind of tell us a little bit about, you know, what you did on that 40 acre piece. Uh, And I know a little bit about that journey myself.
2: Sure. Yeah. So, uh, it was about the same distance from home. It was just, instead of heading straight West from my house, I kind of had to go, uh, Northwest a little bit. And, uh, that was an old, I think it was a 250 acre farm that was split up. Uh, the The original investor bought the farm and split it up, so it was a good mix of, uh, I'd say it was probably 60% wooded and and 40% fillable. So it had a couple of fields that were fallow that had been planted corn and bean rotation before I bought it. So uh, saved me a lot of time with you know not having to clear any. Trees or anything like that, so I was able to jump right in and get get some food plots in and and start working on the uh, timber stand improvement.
1: Okay, so you know having diversity is obviously important, and we talk a lot about that on both podcasts. You know, on that layout and setup of that forty acre property, what didn't you like about it? Because eventually you sold it, so you know maybe it played into. I guess your distaste or maybe you wanted to move on. So let's talk about what you didn't like about the 40 acre property that you had purchased.
2: Yeah. The biggest challenge, unfortunately was uh, one of the neighbors to the West Uh, without, without getting into too many details and and bad and the guy that can't defend himself. It just, he was there. He bought the first piece that was split up. So I think he owned a 60 acre piece, and those other lots have, had sat for a long time. So he kind of had the run of the 250-acre piece that, that hadn't been sold off for a couple of years. So he kind of uh, tried to continue that once I moved in. And, you know, he, it's him and some of his relatives would walk through. I'd catch them on camera. And I'm like, you know, you guys can't be over here anymore. I bought this property. And, you know, you got your 60 over there. And um, just – it, it just got tough being an hour and a half away and, and, and trying to, it, it seemed like every time I, I would go up there to hunt, either his cows would get out or, you know, he'd have some relatives running around and it's, it's just, it it got to be to a point where it wasn't uh, that much fun anymore. Trying to manage that all the time.
1: Yeah. And understandably, and obviously you made that investment and uh, of course his investment in time as, as much as it is money and having to travel up and then obviously not being local that that can certainly make things a little more difficult. Uh, sure. What are, what are things come to mind when you, you think about that property and things that just really didn't sit well with you?
2: Yeah. So it was a rectangle shape. Uh, I'm trying to remember how much road frontage I had, but, uh, it was, it was deeper than it was wide. So that was a challenge also. So you're, I was struggling to try to keep the deer movement on a, uh, linear basis if that makes sense kind of yep. Uh, north and south north and south it went long ways and then it, it was just maybe you know a couple couple hundred yards wide so that that made it a challenge also trying to trying to get deer to stay there and and you know move through there
1: yeah i think one people one thing that people and and this is you know we're going to do a podcast on buying property but long narrow properties and i'm not you know i, I work with clients all the time that that, have that scenario. It it takes a, it takes a really, oh, it takes a lot of work to make those properties function and flow correctly. So, you know, I feel your pain for sure. And sometimes we get into these properties and we say, you know, it's, it's as good as I I, I think it can be, but that limits you at some capacity. So that kind of linear movement, especially have a North South movement and trying to get in access and and not hurting yourself in the, in the meantime is, is really difficult you know, so that's a that's an important topic. Now, did you have south access or north access, west, east, how did that lay out?
2: So I had south access and there was also an old railroad bed that ran south to north uh on the east border. So okay. that worked well with a west wind, which we normally got a west southwest wind, so I was able to sneak along that um, railroad access and slide in anywhere I needed to be without the wind, you know, betraying me.
1: Yeah. And so two points of access obviously is critical and, and certainly helped you in, in that scenario. All right. So let's talk a little bit about the layout, of that property, you know, I know you eventually built, you know, a place that you could stay up there from time to time, kind of, a, I guess we'll call it a shed home or, or something along those lines. Um, but then, you know, I want you to talk a little bit about that because that was a bit of a journey for you. And uh, that was a time commitment effort. And I know you'd, I think it purchased a tractor. i had followed your story. And then, you know, I think when you started doing the layout, you know, what What kind of just did work well for you in, in that scenario, and, and what did you do to work to your advantages on the property?
2: Yeah, so fortunately, most of the tillable was closer to the south, to the road frontage. And uh, moving back to the north, we had a uh, swamp, kind of swampy area on the neighbor's uh, 40, because I had my 40, and then there was a 40 to my west, and then the fellow with the 60 acres The the 40-acre between us, the the guy that I used to rent my tillable out to, he ended up buying that, and the only thing he did was farm it, which which was nice because that gave me less pressure around it, but also created more problems because that other neighbor kept using it like it was his own, so it was kind of a catch-22. But the back half of the property butted up against a couple of bigger chunks to the north, and like I said, there was some clear cuts done probably – 10 years ago in some swamps. So that kind of helped that, that helped the, the property to hunt a little bit bigger. Cause there were some places that people couldn't get into, but the deer would, and, and they would stay. So that had it going for it.
1: Yeah, that's great. I mean, it, it gives you a chance to kind of, I guess, bounce off or leverage, you know, other people's, you know, I guess uh, lack of uh, opportunity. So the opportunity that you gain as a result of those, you know, those different uh, examples there kind of like played into your hand all right so let's let's go to the next layer of this so eventually you sold this property and then what'd you do next
2: yeah so like i said my goal was always to try to own a hundred acres of property but you know I'm a blue-collar guy I'm a policeman I've been a police officer for 30 years um, my wife's a teacher we do pretty well the good lord has blessed us but we've got two girls that are college age now i got one In college, she's in her junior year, and my youngest is going to be starting college in the fall. So, just priorities. I just, I just knew that you know I wasn't going to have that kind of disposable income to try to keep flipping, especially in this market. The, the as you know, and most of your listeners probably know the, the real estate prices have really skyrocketed. So, I discovered uh, some leasing opportunities in Ohio, and I was able to uh, pull my money with some good friends and that are really good hunters and real careful hunters. And we just started uh, gathering up some leases. And, you know, I think this latest one I'm on now is pushing 400 acres and I I could never afford to purchase that and maintain that. But uh, that's kind of the direction I'm heading now.
1: Yeah. So you sold the property, you've scaled up now, obviously 4, 400 acres for any of us is is a stretch you know some people are fortunate to have those opportunities i am not so i'm in the same sure. boat uh, but that but that gives you you know kind of a bigger uh, you know landscape setting to do some of the work that you've probably learned over the years and i think the focus of this podcast is now going to transition and it's going to transition to what hasn't worked and what have you learned over the years that you're going to apply out of this lease or land clients, because you guys do land clients as well. So I want to kind of focus on the failures and then the learned opportunities as a result of those failures. So let's kind of go maybe into some of those examples, and let's think about your current lease and and what you can do better on it.
2: Yeah, for sure. Um, Thinking back, starting out, you know, food plotting was in its infancy. So some of the companies that were out there, uh, Whitetail Institute was one of the main ones, and uh, they were pushing monocultures. They didn't have a whole lot of blends. I think the only blend they might have had at the time was a uh, clover and alfalfa mix. And then their power plant came along a few years later, which still to this day is a really good blend. Uh, I think a lot of companies have kind of copied off of that. But, uh, yeah, just, just plant monocultures. Um, you know, if you'd plant clovers back then or uh, – straight turnips or something like that and if you had a crop failure or a drought or something didn't work out and something happened to that plot that was kind of it you know you were kind of stuck with you know trying to scramble for something some other way to to uh, attract the deer that fall. So what do you do now as
1: a result of that you've and and the power plants you know I think is a really a nice option Uh, something that Todd Chippy, who's on this podcast has talked about you know what what do you do now as a result of kind of understanding monocultures don't work, but then these diverse blends, you know, what does work or what have you seen work well? I know there's some seasonality to it, but, you know, what are you kind of doing now either on your lease or other properties that you're hunting?
2: Yeah, so we're definitely scaling more towards blends, and uh, that comes from getting into more no-till. So we kind of, I kind of went through that whole progression. I was planting food plots with my lawn tractor and some tow-behind stuff early on. And then I progressed into a big tractor with uh, every imp- implement you could think of and tilling the ground. And now we're kind of moving back to no-till because we're discovering the, the uh, health benefits to the soil. And uh, we've been working with a company called vitalize for the last couple of years. And they've got a super diverse blend. It's a two part blend that you, you plant one program in the spring, you come back and terminate it in the fall and plant the second program and it just feeds off of each other and feeds the soil and uh, it keeps you from having to keep tilling that soil up and um, the, the bacteria, the good bacteria stay and, and just all that's transferred into the deer and makes the deer healthier.
1: So out of that vitalized blend and it's a kind of two part punch and you know, they're not a sponsor of this podcast or anything like that, but I'm interested in, you know, maybe some of the plants that are in there in that two part punch that people need to maybe consider when they're doing their own blends. Cause you know, honestly, people can make their own blends. I make my own blends and uh, I provide recommendations and, you know, there's all sorts of things to consider, carbon to nitrogen ratios. You know, we got to look at the soil content, how to build organic material. What, again, I worked with a client today. I was on a client property today and we were talking about simple, easy blends for folks. So I kind of want your opinion on stuff and it may be totally in line with Vitalize Seed or or may not. So I want your opinion.
2: Yeah, so the um, owner of Vitalize, Al Temechko, I'm, I'm sure you've probably talked with him before. Sure. He, he's uh, super into the science behind all of this, and I'm, I'm thankful to have him on speed dial. And um, he, he really has educated me a lot on, on the blends that are the best for the soil. So I can't speak as an expert to that. But I think if people are considering blends, they should try to incorporate you know, some plants that'll fix some nitrogen to the soil, you know, like your, uh, legumes, your clovers, things like that. And you don't want to just put stuff that's just going to keep pulling everything out. You gotta, you gotta read up on your your plant species and and make sure you got a balance of everything that what you're putting in and taking out, you're not completely clearing it. Like if you do a monoculture of corn, you know, and you just keep on coming back and doing that, it's it's not helping the soil, especially if you're tilling it up all the time.
1: Yeah, that's a great point. And, you know, we talked previously on the podcast where we talked about having these blends of beans and corn in concert with another, and, and not one maximizes the other, but they work in some synergy. And, uh, you know, soybeans aren't really known as kind of more of a, nitrogen fixer but they aren't a nitrogen consumer at least in some capacity they do utilize nitrogen but not in the capacity as a lot of other plants like corn does and it's thinking a little bit more in depth about kind of the synergies of plants and i think you know the old i guess old adage about you know corn bean squash that combination you know that you know native americans had propagated years and years ago really sits well with me it's something that I've kind of leveraged and said you know there's got to be some synergies between plants so we're not always just you know taking from the landscapes The other thing is you know we're not doing heavy crop yield so you're not necessarily and, and some you know property owners that I work with are but in this case yield isn't necessarily the primary focus sometimes in case we're looking at nutrient density so we're looking at from I guess we'll say you know some of the basics the uh, the nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, those, those type of macros. And we're looking at some of the nitrogen across the landscape, the the additional value that you get for the surpluses because of the plants that are available. And then we're looking at the micronutrients and their availability to the plants. And then in your case, you explain, you know, obviously the the animals themselves consume these plants and obviously digest them, et cetera. So, you know, the diversity aspect of this, you know, creating a, a deer ponderosa, that's what I like to call it. Gives opportunity for animals to be more attractive seasonally and they receive kind of the nutritional benefits. So, check out that Vitalized Seed. I think that's kind of cool. And I'm kind of happy you shared that because I think it is different and uh, it's an opportunity for people to try different blends, but you can also make your own blends as well. All right, let's get into another topic something, you know, beyond food plots, something that you feel like, you know, it's a must and something that you didn't really focus in on maybe initially or even up to this point that you can do better on.
2: Well, you know, there's, there's several ways you can go with that. Um, it depends on, you know, planting trees. I could go into some of the mistakes I've made over the years. Um, you know, being young and, and, uh, full of energy, you want to buy as many trees as you can and get as many in the ground. So I would buy, you know, some of the, uh, game commissions like state of Pennsylvania has their own nursery. So you can buy trees from them, but, They might only be a foot tall, but I thought, well, I'm going to plant a thousand of these things and I'd run around and plant them, (laughs) you know, the survival rate and, you know, the time that you would see to have them growing, you know, you're not going to see much of a benefit out of that, especially if you have a high deer population, they're going to crush a lot of them for sure, plus other critters in the forest. So I just learned over the years to scale back, you know, be reasonable, maybe, maybe buy a dozen trees at a time, take your time, spend a little extra money, get some four or five, six footers in the ground, cage them properly, mulch them properly. And you know, you'll have them bearing uh, fruit or nuts or whatever it is that you're planting within a handful of years. So you're going to benefit from that and all the work that you're doing instead of just burning yourself out, kind of spinning your wheels in the mud.
1: All right. So let me, uh, let me take a playbook out of your podcast. What's your favorite tree to plant?
2: Uh, I'm going to have to say, uh, a pear tree.
1: Okay. Uh, big fan of pear trees. Any specific yep. variety that you prefer?
2: Uh, I like the kefirs. They, they are easy to care for. They grow fast. They, they put out a lot of fruit.
1: Do you find like the kefir varieties that you're using are late dropping?
2: Um, some are, some aren't. It depends on the, uh, rootstock and where you're getting them from. Can I ask you
1: personally where you get yours from?
2: Yeah, so we work with Morse Nursery We okay. get a lot of uh, trees from them. I've also had good luck in the past, believe it or not, from the uh, Arbor Day Foundation. They have really nice kefir pairs. They're cheap. Um, they, they, they seem to never sell out of them. Like, I've I've messed around and forgot to order them in years past, and I've jumped on their website, and they always seem to have them late, too.
1: That's good. That's good information for everybody. Let's uh, let's jump over to another topic. So I like the food plot trees. Let's get into some other hacks or secrets or things that you feel like really help clients find success. Something that you've kind of worked on with a land client or somebody personally or, you know, on your own property that you felt, you know, kind of excelled and made you kind of get to the next level where you either achieve something, and it could be from a habitat or hunting standpoint.
2: Yeah, it kind of reminds me of the story when I started turkey hunting when I was younger. And um, the old timers would say, you know, don't try to call turkeys where they don't want to go just go and set up where they want to be it's kind of like that with uh, making habitat for deer don't try to make it you know bend it to your will you know spend a little bit of time learning where those deer like to travel where they like to bed you know the, the corridors that they like to use during the rut whatever don't try to you know Landscape your property so much that you're trying to like steer them down a road, like like we'd get in the car and go because they're just you're never going to make them want to go somewhere they don't. So I think that's that's huge to remember when you're laying out a plan.
1: Oh, I love that, and uh, I'm going to add my two cents into that. So here's one topic that I don't feel should be amiss in this conversation. I get a lot of people that contact me and they just bought a piece of property and they're anxious. They want me out there instantaneously. Could you get here tomorrow? Now, anybody follows this, you know, I'm booking out uh, quite a ways and you know, I apologize for that, but I can only take on so many clients. And here's the one thing that's the benefit. You have time. Time isn't on everybody's side, but it takes time after you buy a property to observe. And when I bought my property, the first thing I did was I took a year to observe and I didn't rush into something. A lot of times we're in this anxious, you know, attachment with our property. And what we realize is we may not know everything we need to know. Like when is it used seasonally, right? How do we collect data on it? What are deer using, you know, on the landscape? How are they naturally flowing to Brian's point? And it's sitting back and taking time. I know time isn't on our side in life, but at some point, if you don't take the time to observe and mark things out, take your own property and start drawing it out. Everybody who calls me, I give them a homework assignment. Whether you hire me or not, you have homework. And it gives you kind of this strategy. And uh, in my case, you know, kind of a list of things to do before I show up. And I want you to collect data. I want you to analyze things. I want you to look at the landscape like Brian just talked about. So Brian, thanks for bringing up that point. Because to me, I feel like it's advantageous to take the time to actually look at what you're working with and breathe a little bit. You know, everybody's in such a rush. They want instantaneous gratification. And with my own property, I sat on it a year and I observed. And I do this professionally, and I took my time to kind of think through it. And guess what, guys? I made a mistake. I made many mistakes on my property. I'm, I'm certainly not, you know, absolved to perfection. I, I want to be as perfect as I can, but that's almost impossible. So take the time to learn things. All right, I'm going to go one more little direction with you. And I feel like, you know, you've done a ton of, I guess, different podcasts uh, over the years, and you've had a lot to listen to with guests one, I want to know who your favorite guest was on your podcast. And then from that, maybe that discussion or other discussions, what have you learned? Like one thing you've learned that you felt like, boy, that is extremely interesting and, and uh, kind of shapes the way I want to do this going forward.
2: Yeah, that's tough. We've had some good ones. Uh, Steve Bartilla, uh, Bill Winky, Mark Drury. I, I'd, I'd probably have to say Mark Drury if, I, if I'm if forced to pick one. Okay. It's just the, the meticulous process he goes through, not just setting up his farms, but just every detail about hunting and access. And one thing that I, that's always stuck with me is he doesn't put any unnecessary pressure on his farm. And it doesn't matter. And, you know, John, and most of your listeners know you could have the greatest farm in the world. But if you're not managing your access and, and putting as little pressure on it as possible, it doesn't matter what habitat improvements that you're going to do on them.
1: Yeah, I think that's a great topic. And I think the juries are obsessed with intrusion and how to manage that. And they have kind of steps that they go through that I've kind of been impressed with listening to them. And And I agree. I think that was a great podcast. I had listened to as many podcasts as I could. I mean, you guys have had, you know, a large number of podcasts. It's hard to follow them all, but man, it's great content. All right, I want to end with uh, you know one last little bit. Um, you know, out of this podcast, we we're kind of getting into some of your failures and successes. But I think a lot of times, you know, people want to learn from from you and what you're doing. What do you think your next steps are, and how are you taking your game to the next level when it comes to a hunting standpoint? What are you doing different going forward that that you think you kind of missed out on maybe in the past couple of years and and maybe that aligns with your goals and expectations, you know, shooting larger bucks, being more patient. What do you think makes you different going forward?
2: Well, that's the key, trying to learn from past mistakes. And, and I have a bad habit of letting my mind override my experience and telling me, okay, this looks like a great spot. And, and I just, I'm, I'm getting better at it every year. But, uh, you know, I got to let go of that, what I think looks great and where I think the deer should be. And just kind of, you know, taking a few minutes and and scouting a little bit more, Um, getting out there in in the early spring and, you know, learning the property without having to put any pressure on it during hunting season and just just fine-tuning those locations instead of just settling for what you think is just okay.
1: Do you think that one thing you may have, I guess, gained, and, and here's something that I think I've focused on, I'll take the client property today. These clients, I'm sure, are going to listen to this podcast. You know, we took, you know, basically a raw property and turned it into something special. Just in the conversation today, we we kind of metamorphosized it and and turned it into this excellent property. I know that it's not perfect for my design and layout, but I feel like I got them a good way of the percentage there. And we created great spots. Do you feel like now you're able to create great spots and suck those deer to those locations where previously you were kind of hunting the sign and uh, it's kind of... Maybe one of these things that you might struggle with because you're on a lease and and I don't know how much work you can do on the lease, but kind of setting up great spots. you think like that's an evolution that you've kind of achieved and taking it from, well, this looks good to making this great? Have you you kind of experienced that in any capacity?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'm very fortunate and, and I really won't get involved with the lease until unless I know that I can make some improvements on it. So I've been fortunate. The four leases that I have in Ohio, the landowner's, been very generous and allowed us to make a lot of changes to to help us, but absolutely yeah, you look at this stuff long enough, uh, pushing 20 years in my case, you know some things you start to see repeatable and in the mature buck behavior you know when we go out west, you know we got clients all the way out uh, I think Jared was down in uh, Mississippi or out west towards um, Nebraska, deer or deer. They're, they're going to mature bucks. They kind of have the same mentality, you know, no matter where you're at now, you're going to have to apply that differently everywhere you go, depending on the landscape and the terrain and everything. But those big bucks all have the same kind of mentality. When you boil it down, they want to be safe and they want cover and they want a piece of property. That's why when you kill a big buck in an area, Another one moves in pretty quickly, and I've seen that over and over and over again on these properties that I've helped manage. We just had one, my lease partner, Dave, just shot a beautiful Ohio buck. Uh, It it wasn't maybe a week later, this other mature buck moved in, and he's been on that camera ever since that other one's been gone. It's it's pretty impressive to watch. And once you pay attention to what those mature bucks like and what they need, that starts to become second nature to you.
1: Yeah. And you can see it. You can envision it on the landscape and then pick and choose your battles and where to go and how to hone them. So that's really interesting. All right. I want to end there. Um, I want to give you opportunity to talk about anything you got going on, your podcast, you know, anything that's important to you right
2: now. Yeah. I appreciate you having me on, John. Always good to catch up and anything that we got going on. It's easy to find it's habitat podcast. We're on YouTube, uh, Facebook, Instagram, audio podcast anywhere you can get your podcast just google habitat podcast you can find everything on our website i think we've got 200 videos on our youtube channel now from everything from how to plant food plots to how to cook your deer so check that out uh, we'd appreciate it and uh, drop me a line if you have any questions or comments
1: thanks brian man i appreciate you being on and taking time with me today and I look forward to to catch up with you again. You know, maybe I'll be back on your podcast and vice versa. And uh, thanks for filling us in. I like at the end, we're ending with that lease and having the opportunity to mold it into something special rather than just having a lease where you've got to kind of, you know, you can't be offensive. You're defensive and you can't make the changes. I think that's kind of an important takeaway I got with the last part of the conversation. So I appreciate you sharing that.
2: Appreciate it, John. Thanks again.
1: All right. Talk again soon. Thanks, Brian. See ya.
2: Maximize Your Hunt is a production of Whitetail Landscapes. For more information on how John Teeter and his team of experts can help you maximize your hunt, check out whitetaillandscapes.com.